The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of the Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norway, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Great Good to, to see you. Yes, thank you. Congratulations on the birth of your little one. Thank you, Father. Little you. Camilla Felicity, right? Oh, Felicity, yeah, Father. Oh, wonderful. Yes, her patron saint's feast day today. Yes, oh, indeed. So, uh, yes, indeed. Congratulations to her, too. Thank you very much, Father. <laughs> thank you. Um, Father, any prayer requests to begin the program tonight? Oh, there are always prayer requests, Tom. In fact, there's a, a long list, as you know. Um, I would actually ask uh, people to pray for the repose of the soul of uh, Marie Ruth Kunkel, who just passed away at a very advanced age, dear soul, Grandma Kunkel. She's known by perhaps hundreds, hundreds of people, very prolific. And uh, so I ask you to pray for her, for her. And please pray for Mrs. Shawhan, Mrs. Marion Shawhan, and um, also, of course, uh, we need to, uh, we're going to uh, continue praying for Paul Riley as well. And uh, well, we've got a, got a list. I, I'm afraid if I started, I always risk leaving somebody important off. But the point is that if, if people would just pray for those um, intentions of their priests, so can we have so many intentions given to us? And people ask us to relay those intentions to uh, the faithful, because they know we pray. And uh, so I just ask everyone to keep uh, the prayers that have been especially committed to their priests in their daily prayers that will cover everyone. And I, I always commend everyone committed to my prayers uh, immediately to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, you know, and ask Our Lady to uh, remember them all with me. <clears throat> and um, she's always mindful. She doesn't overlook a single one, ever. So I ask everyone to do that, to join me in praying for all of those dear souls now, who are uh, especially in need of prayers. Okay, well, Father, we have uh, several viewer email uh, questions you wanted to try and work through. Mm. First one, um, you wrote in and said, well, Father, I consider myself a traditional Catholic, but after careful review of all the different positions, uh, such as recognize and resist, sedevicantism, legitimacy of the Novus Ordo, I have no idea what is true anymore. 
I just want my soul to be safe, so what should I do? Also, it says, are no Sordo attendees condemned? Yes, it diminishes the faith, but very many are simply accepting what they believe the Church of Christ teaches. Can that by itself lead anyone to hell? Answer that, fine. Well, uh, when a writer says, I have no idea what's true anymore, um, I think he's selling himself short. <laughs> um, obviously, he does have a sense of, uh, of uh, the faith. He does know that the Novus Ordo does diminish. It's somehow wanting with regard to the faith. He's looked at all those positions, he said, and I guess he finds them rather confusing. And uh, he's not alone. I mean, a lot of people who find the whole situation today very confusing. But, uh, you know, through all of that, it sounds to me as though he, he still realizes that the Catholic position is to follow Catholic tradition. That the Church has said that in times of confusion, uh, we are have, uh, to have kind of a default mode where every Catholic is called upon to simply adhere to Catholic tradition Follow Catholic tradition, no matter what else may happen. That is the one true uh, rock to which we all have to cling, and that is Catholic tradition. So we reject the innovations of the modernists uh, with all of the changes that came in uh, leading up to and certainly after Vatican II. And we simply hold on to the traditional Roman Rite of Mass uh, going back to the earliest centuries, right? Apostolic times. And uh, we have the uh, Roman Rite of the Sacraments and all the rest uh, that have come down to, through the age of saints and, uh, and martyrs. So uh, these we know we can do reliably uh, with, with certitude that they are the Catholic thing to do right now. This is what the Church has always told her Catholic people to do. Um, and, and said that this is what they uh, especially necessary, that they have this as their guiding principle in times of confusion and, uh, and chaos, such as we have now. Uh, the confusion, chaos, has been wrought by the modernists, you know. I mean, even as our writer, you know, mentions the state of a countess position, and I don't know what other positions he's, he's, he's examined, there are many of them, <clears throat> with different nuances and so on. Um, and unfortunately, those who hold different positions on the subject uh, of uh, the papacy, Francis, uh, and so on, um, can point the finger at others who disagree and say, well, you're, you know, you're saying this or you're, you're doing this and you you know, you're creating all this problem, but, but everybody just has to realize that um, the problem is, is created by the modernists. It's not the people who are the state of a countess or the anti-state of a countess or who are creating the problem. Uh, we're all the victims of the modernists. And if people are questioning the papacy of Francis, it's because of Francis. It's because of Francis himself and what he's done and said. And people cannot blame other people for questioning uh, the basis of what Francis himself is doing. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we really have to realize 
that it is the modernists who, who are the, you know, the, 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 the cause of all this chaos. And uh, people are, are responding to it, trying to respond, not just react, but trying to respond intelligently as Catholics and according to the mind of the Church. And there are some disagreements uh, uh, as to what that requires of us now. But rather than blame the people who are disagreeing on how to respond to modernism, um, they should all realize that we're in this position because of the modernists, and they're the ones who've inflicted this damage on the Church and all of us too. And um, we should be trying to pull together to try to sort things out and decide, well, what is the Catholic thing to do under these circumstances, rather than engage in mutual recriminations, as though we're blaming each other for what's going on, whereas it really is the modernists, the greatest threat the Church has ever faced, um, and their modernism, which is a synthesis of all the heresies, as St. Pius X said. That's the problem, and that's where our focus should be. Does that make sense? Yes, Father. Yeah. <clears throat> um, okay, another email. Viewer says, Father, I was deeply saddened when I heard about the SSPB position on the CMRI because I enjoy listening to you and you have helped me along my journey. The issue at hand is I have only an SSPX and CMRI church near me. Would attending one of these churches hurt me in the long run? The SSPB parish near me is uh, over two hours away. Would you recommend this individual I, I certainly can't recommend the CMRI. Um, their sordid past with um, you know, their origins in the work of Francis Schuchardt, anybody who's familiar with that or is willing to really delve into and study that would find that it is abhorrent. It is, it is certainly not Catholic. Uh, going right back to, you know, his claim of holy orders from a schismatic named Daniel Q. Brown. Um, anyway, it, it's, there's not enough time uh, tonight to, to recount the sordid history of all that, the origins of the CMRI. But when the CMRI kind of wedded the Took bishops, uh, the Took Episcopal line, it just... Uh, compounded the problem, okay, because it brought together, again, the sordid past of the Took Bishop line, um, starting with Archbishop Took himself, who did things that were totally contrary to Catholic tradition, and actually condemned by all Catholic tradition, such as consecrating non-Catholics as bishops. <laughs> and, uh, so again, I mean, from, from the very the origins of this group and its continuation, um, no matter how, you know, nice the vestment, vestments they, they may use or how much Latin they may employ, or it doesn't make them traditional Catholic. If you look back at the origin and development of the CMRI, um, there, there are so many things involved that are completely contrary to all Catholic tradition. Uh, as Pope Pius XII wrote is in the encyclical Apostolorum Principis, contra omne fas, I mean, the, the things that are totally and contrary, totally contradictory and uh, at variance with, with all Catholic practice. Uh, 
uh, at their origins, and as they say, that has just been compounded by the by the marriage of the CMRI with the Took lineage. So, no, I just would say, please, I mean, I'd rather you, uh, I would say that you should not go there any place. Um, and if you have to be homebound and practicing the faith as well as you can at home, then that is the choice you should make. Um, I think it'd be a travesty to go with a CMRI. And uh, as far as Pius X, uh, well, you have two hours to go. And again, the compromises there are, again, problematic. You know, they'll bring in priests who are ordained in the Novus Ordo and not conditionally ordained in the traditional, in the traditional rite. And that poses problems because of the doubtfulness of the new rite of ordination. Um, not everybody sees it that way, but I do see it that way. And I think the uh, say please, the Society of St. Pius V sees it that way, right? Um, officially, that there's a, a doubt about the new rite of ordination, and that's the very least you can say about it. And uh, one would really have to examine uh, what priests are there of the Society of St. Pius X, how they were ordained, and um, to have any confidence that they're validly ordained. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I mean, there are priests in the Society of St. Pius X who are certainly validly ordained. The problem is that there are also priests who are employed by the Society of St. Pius X who, in my estimation, could not be called certainly validly ordained. I think there's, there's a doubt uh, about the validity of the ordination just because of the compromises the Society of St. Pius X makes. Uh, with modernism and the modernists in the Vatican. So again, uh, I'm sorry that you're, uh, the writer is in, in the situation there, but I don't necessarily have a solution for him, except to sanctify the day as well as you can, and in place at home, and um, see if he can uh, perhaps relocate his family uh, to a real tradition, fully traditional Catholic chapel with a real fully traditional Catholic priest. In the meantime, uh, watch what Catholics believe. We have the broadcast of the Mass daily, and uh, at least that will, you know, have it bring you in that contact with the traditional Mass uh, being actually being offered in real time. Okay, uh, next email. Father, a viewer says, I love your show. Thank you for producing it. My question is this. A traditional Catholic is unconvinced of the dogmatic fact of state of Vicantism, i.e. they do not embrace the theory, should they abstain from approaching the communion rail at a Society of St. Pius V chapel on this account? Asked another way, what, if any, public declaration regarding the current occupation of the See of Peter is made or presumed to be made by a traditional Catholic when he presents himself at the communion rail at an SSB chapel? And the answer is none. Um... I don't know of any uh, Society of St. Pius V priest or congregation of St. Pius V priest who interrogates anybody as to whether they um, are convinced Francis is the Pope or convinced he's not the Pope or, or don't know whether he's the Pope or not. Um, I don't, and I don't know of any of the other priests uh, doing so. 
Uh, no declaration is required about this matter. And I th again, I think it all comes back to the fact that uh, it's a theological position. Um, and I think a very viable and Catholic theological position to hold that Francis is not and can't be a pontiff, the Roman pontiff, because he does not have the faith. And uh, is not even a member of the Catholic Church, really. Doesn't profess the Catholic faith. Um, but he actually professes a contrary faith, which is modernism, really. Um, but that none of us claims the authority, the magisterial authority, to authoritatively settle that question. And so we don't consider it a matter of Catholic dogma or doctrine. Uh, in, in, in the case of Francis particularly, as though somebody who thinks he is the Pope, uh, even mistakenly, you know, if it were decided by the Church at some future moment that Francis was never uh, a Roman pontiff, never the vicar of Christ on earth, was never the true Pope, um, I mean, that would say retroactively those who believe now that he is would be wrong, and they'd be following an anti-Pope, right? But uh, again, I mean, would that reflect upon their status now? And the answer is no. Uh, and we can't certainly can't decide that. So we don't ask for any declaration from anybody on the subject. Um, so um, uh, if one if attends a society of St. Pius V chapel, attends a mass offered by a society of St. Pius V priest, or a congregation of St. Pius V priest, and that individual attending the Mass, believes that Francis is truly the Pope, for whatever, however he explains that to himself, or uh, whatever arguments he finds convincing, that should not keep him away from receiving Holy Communion. Uh, one could say he's, he's being illogical, because the one he says is the true Pope says that we shouldn't be offering this Mass, and uh, shouldn't have this chapel, and that that particular Catholic person shouldn't be there and shouldn't be attending it. Um, so it seems to be kind of contradictory <laughs> for a person saying, okay, I believe Francis is the Pope. He, he forbids me to be here. He forbids these priests from doing this. He doesn't even recognize them as Catholic priests. He doesn't recognize this as a Catholic church. But I'm okay believing that he's the Pope coming here, attending Mass here, and receiving the sacraments here. So... It seems illogical, but as but I just mentioned, it is Francis who's put people in this position, and has uh, seemingly put people in almost a, 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 an impossible uh, situation to try to reconcile what they know or think they know. Uh, so, as far as I'm concerned, any any issues with that would be Francis's responsibility. Uh, I just see that there are many Catholic people who are very confused today. Um, but they have the Catholic faith, and they're doing their very best to practice the Catholic faith. They know there are a lot of questions they can't answer, and all they want to do is, is practice the Catholic faith, uh, attend valid, the true Catholic Mass, and receive true Catholic sacraments. And that is what is motivating them. And uh, I can't fault them for that anyway. 
Another question, hello, Father, uh, regarding confession from a Novus Ordo priest. For many Catholics that are ignorant on the probable invalidity of Novus Ordo priests, do they need to make a general confession to a valid priest, or is their intention to receive absolution from a valid priest sufficient in matter? Well, sufficient to obtain forgiveness. Uh, if you if you don't have a, a validly ordained priest, then uh, you can't receive valid uh, absolution, right? One has to be validly ordained priest to be able to to um, administer absolution. Uh, so if you're going to somebody who is not validly ordained, then he cannot give you absolution for your sins. Does your contrition for your sin absolve you? Well, we know that perfect contrition absolves you from all sin, right? But one might say, well, yeah, but I go to confession because I don't count on having perfect contrition, and the sacrament provides uh, for the forgiveness I need, even in spite of my uh, imperfect contrition. Um, that is a question that, that only God can answer, right? Whether the goodwill of somebody going to an invalidly ordained priest today, by the goodwill of someone who is in good faith going to confession, uh, whether that would suffice to obtain forgiveness. Uh, my own thought on the subject is that I, I believe it would. Um, at such point that the person becomes aware of the doubtful ordination, though, then the question arises, well, should the person then make a general confession? I think that's what the question there is. Uh, to um, account for all those sins and receive a valid absolution for them all. I think that would be the reasonable thing to do. Um, I mean, you know, at, at various points in our lives, Tom, we, we all should uh, seriously consider making general confessions. Uh, it's a very wholesome Catholic practice to do so. And so it, it seems to me that if, if we find out that there's a doubt about the valid ordination of the priest we've been going to confession to, and therefore about the validity of the, of the absolutions we've been receiving, it would seem to be very reasonable to say, well, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, take this opportunity to make a general confession of the sins of my whole life now, and I will designate to the new priest, uh, to the, the priest I'm going to now, who I know is validly, certainly validly ordained, uh, I'm going to make known to him the sins that I committed and confessed to a doubtfully ordained priest. And I'm going to let him know that these were confessed, but they were confessed to priests ordained to the Novus Ordo, or for what other reason, uh, there's a doubt about the ordination. And, uh, and I will leave it to God then to decide what is necessary to be done. You know? uh, because only God can know, really, um, whether or not those sins were forgiven. Um, so anyway, I'd just recommend a general confession uh, after that. Does it, uh, does it make it necessary to do? Um, I, don't, I personally don't think I, I could do that. I don't think I could say to a person who comes to confession and says, I've been going to Novus Ordo Priest for confession all these years. Do I have to go back and um, redo all those confessions and all the sins of those confessions. Um, 
my own take on this, and there are those who might find fault with me for this, and I would say, okay, well, maybe they have a point, but um, I would say, look, I cannot tell you uh, with certainty that your past confessions were not valid, and that, you know, there was no valid absolution given there. Uh, what I can tell you with certitude is, if you come to confession to a validly ordained priest, and he gives you absolution for your sins. Because you have universal contrition for all the sins you've committed, because you're sorry with genuine contrition for having offended God and having sinned against him in any way, then that absolution that you receive at that point obtains the forgiveness of all your sins. And uh, I think that is very securely the teaching of the church, that when you, when you tell the priest, I am heartily sorry for all my sins, and you have true contrition for your sins, then the absolution that is given there absolves all the sins, the sins you remember, the sins you don't remember, the sins you confessed innocently, but maybe inadequately, but now you don't know that, and you, 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 you don't... You, you can't solve that right now because it's beyond the province of your ability at the moment to say any more than I am heartily sorry for all my sins. And you mean it. The absolution absolves all of your sins. Okay. So that, with that certitude, I think you, a person should actually um, just kind of go forward. Um, my concern in requiring more than that and expecting the person to go back and dredge up all the sins that he or she's confessed for the last 15, 20, 25 years is that it will impose an unnecessary anxiety on them and even perhaps impose a kind of scrupulosity and induce a kind of scrupulosity on them for which there is no escape. And I'm very, I think there's a certain danger in that. So um, my own method of proceeding would be exactly as I told you, just to tell them, look, insofar as this troubles you and concerns you, yes, by all means, go ahead and confess the sins of the past. Let me know what they are, I'll, you know, bring them up, I'll give you absolution for them. But as far as imposing a requirement on you to go back and to um, repeat all those sins of all those confessions of those years, um, I ask, my, my main question, my, my fundamental question is, confess the sins you're aware of that are not confessed. As far as the ones you have confessed, I just ask you, are you truly and heartfully sorry for all of the sins you've committed? This is the first valid absolution that you're receiving in all these years, then it is the teaching of the Church that those sins are forgiven by this valid absolution because you're truly sorry for them. Well, now, if, if uh, there are wiser uh, priests out there, who, you know, I would like to hear from them. Okay. Uh, next question. Father, long before Vatican II, my mother grew up hearing the Mass said in English. Uh, she was born in the 1930s. Uh, whether said in English or Latin, the Master said ad orientum. During that time, she belonged to a parish in a diocese of Wisconsin. 
Uh, so how or why did the church allow this mass to be said in the vernacular? That's a very good question. Um, there was a liturgist named Pius Parsch, P-A-R-S-C-H, a German, actually, who in the uh, interwar years actually introduced a kind of liturgical movement in Germany. And um, I understand that he was introducing uh, masses in German there. Uh, there were also liturgical efforts here in America by um, innovators back then who took liberties that were not sanctioned. Um, there's a book by Ellard called The Mass of the Future. Uh, you might have seen copies of it, Tom, in which um, this priest liturgist was actually forecasting the new Mass, but this, his book was written in the 1940s, as I recall, and he was calling for innovations then uh, that were in the direction of the new Mass, what became the new Mass in the 1960s. So there was the um, liturgical, the true Catholic liturgical movement, uh, spearheaded by Dom uh, Prosper Guéranger. And Dom Guéranger led a true Catholic liturgical revival. Uh, you're familiar with his uh, work, the liturgical year, which is very edifying. Uh, but at the same time, there was a modernist thrust in the church going back into the late 1800s, um, trying to push for changes in liturgy uh, to modernize the liturgy and bring it into tune with the modern world. And that included the vernacular. And yes, um, it did pop up here and there. I don't know about the specific instances that the writer mentions here, but it doesn't really surprise me that in various dioceses here in America, uh, this would have been attempted. Um, whether it uh, was a, uh, a temporary uh, experiment lasting only a, a few liturgies or a few months, I don't know. Um, the experience that he said his grandmother, is that right? His mother had. Uh, was this just uh, even then a liturgical oddity that she experienced or was it standard operating procedure at that parish? I don't know. I, can't, I don't know that from what he wrote, and I don't know that he knows the answer to that question. But uh, there were attempts made to um, kind of, uh, well, experiment and um, kind of push things forward, push the envelope, even back then. Now, you know, we, we have to remember that in the history of the church, there were... Um, I don't know, I wouldn't call them experiments or not. Recently, at the beginning of the month of July, we had the feast of Saint, uh, feast day of Saint uh, Cyril and Methodius, the great apostles to the Slavic peoples, um, July 7th, actually, their feast day. <clears throat> and they introduced a mass in uh, Slavic language, uh, the Slavic language. It was the traditional mass. A, but the traditional Latin Mass, but just simply uh, translated into the Slavic language. And this matter was, this was objected to. I mean, we're talking about the 800s. This goes back a long ways. 
And this, there, was object, there were objections to this being done. And the whole question was brought to, I think, Pope John VIII, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he ruled in favor of allowing them to have this. So the idea of having a vernacular liturgy is not something utterly alien in the history of the Church. Um, if one were to ask you or me about, let's say, a choice, if we, if we had a choice between having the traditional Mass in the vernacular or having the Novus Ordo in Latin, if those, that was the choice that was offered to you, which choice would you take? Well, of course, you'd want the traditional Mass in English. It's the traditional Mass, right? Um, the priest might be just using the opposite page in the Missal. You know, you have the English and, and the Latin in your daily Missals, lay Missals. And uh, so the priest might be reading the English there. But it's the traditional Mass in a different language. But it's still the traditional Mass <coughs> expressing the traditional Catholic faith. The problem we have here is the modernist Mass, the no, no order, the new order Mass, in any language is defective. It is not Catholic. It doesn't express the Catholic faith. Well, even in Latin or Greek, it wouldn't express the Catholic faith. So, uh, you know, the Church has never necessarily outright condemned using the, vacu the vernacular. Um, <clears throat> that's not essentially the problem. But the church has clung to the, you say, we'd say, you'd say the apostolic languages and the ancient languages um, because they enshrine the truth of the faith and the mass so perfectly, so beautifully. They are traditional. And uh, they are the, the perfect Let's, let's say they are the, I wouldn't say perfect, but ideal um, conveyance of the faith from generation to generation because those languages do not change and develop and thus uh, not only change their, you know, they change their meaning, the words themselves change their meanings. I think um, G.K. Chesterton had expressed it very well when he said, the difference between Latin and the modern vernacular languages is not the difference between a dead language and a living language, but it's the difference between an immortal language and a dying language. And modern languages are continually evolving and changing, and uh, we can think of so many words now in English that have taken on meanings that are even, you know, that were, are very far removed from their original classical meaning. The words themselves have been polluted and corrupted by a, a modern and corrupt culture that abuses those words. <clears throat> um, whereas the, the meaning of the language is enshrined and, and, and perpetuated in the Latin and the Koine, the ancient Greek, and so on. Um, who was it? Uh, it was, I think it was even John the 23rd who, curiously enough, pointed out that the Latin language actually mirrors the characteristics of the marks of the church and saying that the Latin language is, has the unity and it has 
the holiness because of its history and the Catholicity of a universality and the apostolicity of going back to the apostolic times that the church itself has. You know, that one true church has to have the four marks of being one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And even John the Twenty-Third, I think, pointed out, curiously enough, as he was trying to lay the groundwork for Vatican II, uh, to say that the Latin language actually shares in those marks, uh, characteristics of the language echo the marks of the church. So, um, so anyway, I'm getting a little far afield here, perhaps, but um, yes, there were efforts uh, uh, by wildcats, as it were, liturgists, <laughs> to, to introduce uh, the vernacular tongue before Vatican II. Um, they did it because, and, and they, they did it then, and they pushed for it at Vatican II because they realized that if you could have all of the sacramental rites in the Mass itself, the sacrificial rite of the Mass, uh, put into the modern languages, then you could start the process of the evolution of doctrine and dogma, and these things would then all be uh, thrown up for grabs and, and as far as their translations, and you'd create chaos. And that's exactly what, what happened at and after Vatican II with the liturgical changes. They created a kind of liturgical chaos. Even Paul VI, even Paul VI, when, when he put the new Mass in, in place, um, he himself said, it is our hope that these new dispositions will bring to an end that period of, uh, of experimentation, he said, which was conducted often without our, uh, against our very will. He acknowledged that, um, against our very will, that a lot of this, this experimentation had been going on and uh, that he had no control over it. So he hoped in granting them the new Mass that they would stop all this, but of course they didn't. It was the very point that uh, that experimentation would be uh, a permanent part of the, of the ongoing revolution. And you see that now with Francis, right? With his Amazonian rite and uh, the Mayan rite of liturgy and all the rest that he's trying to bring in here and bringing up the indigenous, uh, making, meaning pagan cultural uh, elements of, of liturgy. Um, so anyway, I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. A... Uh, okay, maybe last question tonight. Father, what is the opinion of the Society of St. Pius V concerning the imposition of gloves onto the head of the candidate as a matter for holy orders, the diaconate priesthood or episcopate, instead of the imposition of the hands? Is gloves with hands underneath a valid matter? I thought the gloves must come off for the ordaining slash consecrating with the physical hands touching the candidate's head. Uh, it, in fact, both hands for priesthood and episcopate, and one hand for ordaining a deacon. So is it necessary, Father, for the gloves to come off? Can they stay on? Well, according to 
Well, the, the writer is correct insofar as he says that the imposition of one hand is necessary to ordain someone a deacon. That's the proper matter, according to Papias XII, Sacramento Ordinis, right? 1947. And the imposition of both hands is necessary in the Roman Rite for the ordination of a priest, right? Again, according to Sacramento Ordinis, an infallible decree of Pope Pius XII in 1947. Um, Pope Pius XII does not say anything about, uh, about gloves. <clears throat> uh, when the writer says imposing gloves or placing gloves on the hand, <clears throat> well, there's nothing in any of the sacramental rites of the church that talks about laying gloves on, on anybody's head. Um, <clears throat> then he goes on to talk about the hands under the gloves. Well, the hands aren't under the gloves, they're inside the gloves, right? Um, and the imposition of hands does not explicitly state the necessity of the skin of the bishop's hand touching the head, I mean, even the skin of the head of the person being ordained. I mean, one could take it to the point where saying, well, <clears throat> gee, should we shave the person's head? I mean, that one might appeal to the tonsure and say, well, you see, the church uh, would shave hair off the head so you could make that physical contact. But no, there was never any suggestion of that anywhere that I know of uh, by any liturgist or, or sacramental theologian. Uh, the imposition of hands is the gesture, whereas the hands are laid upon the head, right? And uh, I don't know that there's any emphasis uh, of the, the, like the physical contact of the, the skin of the hands touching the, the, the head of the person who's being ordained, as though the gloves somehow would prevent that contact necessary. Uh, in fact, in the traditional Roman rite, the bishop is wearing the gloves during the consecratory preface, during, during the preface, during which uh, he actually says the words, the essential words of ordination, and he imposes his hands wearing the gloves on the head of those being ordained. That's the traditional Roman rite going back centuries and centuries and centuries. And that is the practice of the church. The gloves are, are inconsequential in that case. The hands are imposed. Um, you might, if, if you want to argue through the gloves, the hands are imposed. Right? Um, so that does not affect the validity in any way. Um, that's the practice of the church, and that's the way it is, you know. Um, it just puzzles me a little bit as to why the individual would think it was necessary to remove the gloves before that. It was never the practice of the church to do that. And uh, so that does not in, in any way impede the imposition of the hands of the bishop. Well, I think that about covers it. Father, anything else you wanted to mention tonight? Well, Tom, here we are... Um, coming uh, you know, toward the, in the latter half of July, anyway. We're approaching a beautiful feast day, uh, St. Anne, uh, the mother of our Blessed Lady, right? Soon we'll be in August and celebrate the 
great feast of the Transfiguration of our Lord and then the uh, Assumption of Our Lady, the, the next day, the Feast of St. Joachim, Our Lady's Father. We have these beautiful feast days coming up. We'll have uh, August 22nd, Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. We'll have the Ordination Day. Two of our young priests of the congregation, uh, Father Harbor and uh, Father Peters, to be ordained on uh, their now Reverend Mister. They will be ordained. It will be Father Harbor and Father Peters on August 30th, uh, by the grace of God. I intend to be there, um, by the grace of God. Um, but we have coming up um, in October an event that is not so auspicious. On October 4th, Francis is going to begin um, the, you might say, the, the work of actually uh, formalizing his synodal church, which is not the Catholic Church, quite the contrary. It is an anti-Catholic uh, ersatz church of modernism. Um, the last program I did um, was a monologue on that very subject of the very nature of this, this synodal church of Francis. How it's the church exactly as envisioned uh, in the encyclical Pascendi by St. Pius X in 1907, a church, the Church of the Modernists, which Pius X condemned. And uh, he condemned it as being not the Catholic Church, okay? But a, a blatant substitute for the true Catholic Church. So this is going on now. This is all coming to fruition before our very eyes, beginning in October. And we have to, uh, in a sense, be prepared to explain to people what's happening to them, especially those who are confused. You know, there was a, a gentleman who wrote in uh, after a recent show in which I talked about the dystopian idea uh, kind of a, a dystopian situation, I should say. <clears throat> and that situation was the idea that if you take an example of Francis, who is, say, manifestly uh, not Catholic. In other words, he's a manifest heretic. And um, then the procedure to be followed, according to some, would be uh, summoning the hierarchy, the hierarchy gathering together, and the bishops simply declaring that Francis had lost the faith, did not have the Catholic faith, had um, therefore um, was no longer Catholic and had, you know, not, not Pope because he had lost the faith, essentially. Uh, because in terms of the Catholic faith, he had essentially died, okay? Now, there are those who say that that is the procedure that it would have to be followed, and that in making that declaration, um, the bishops would then also say that his acts as putative pope, when people thought he was the pope, but now that they know, that they know he's not, and he wasn't all that time, that his acts are all null and void, and they would have to go back and nullify all that he had done, the appointments and declarations and all the rest. And I mentioned that that would be dystopian. I said it would be almost impossible to um, 
saying, okay, we're, we're going to go back for a year, five years, whatever, how long it's been since he became a notorious heretic or a manifest heretic, and we're going to undo all those things that he had done. Now, some I called it dystopian. But somebody wrote in and said, well, this is, this is nonsense. He said, uh, what Father Jenkins is saying is nonsense because um, would it not be dystopian also what Father Jenkins is saying that he thinks Francis was never the Pope because he never had the faith to begin with. And he always was, uh, uh, you know, manifestly heretical in his, in his, in his, in his belief. Uh, so that he never really was a member of the church, never really had the Catholic faith, and so he, he couldn't have become Pope in the first place. Isn't that equally dystopian? And I would say, yes, it is. I would say this is the whole point. This person is adding the whole point. The point is we are in a situation that is of its very nature a dystopian situation. The whole point of having a pope who loses the faith is it becomes a manifest heretic and having the hierarchy having to come together and saying well he's manifestly lost the faith and therefore essentially he's died in terms of the faith and he's he is not he's not the pope and then having to go back and retroactively undo what he did right that's dystopian having a man chosen uh, by uh, what appears to be the College of Cardinals, a man who never had the faith, and he's chosen because he didn't have the faith, because it was a, a radical revolutionary. And that's why the, these cardinals voted for him. That's a dystopian situation, right? <clears throat> but the question here is, as dystopian as, as those situations are, are they any more, quote-unquote, dystopian than having a pope like Francis, isn't that situation itself dystopian to think that Francis, seeing uh, what, he, what he does and hearing what he says and saying, but he's the Pope, the whole Pope and nothing but the Pope, you have to accept him as the Pope no matter what. Isn't that dystopian also? And this is the problem we're faced with because of what the modernists have done. The Catholic people are, are, are faced with this, this seeming dilemma. It's a dilemma. Choose one or the other. Among all the various possibilities, they're all equally dystopian, although not everybody sees them as equally dystopian. Basically, what you have is the traditional Catholic people are trying to figure out which is the most and which is the least dystopian of all possible scenarios facing this, facing us with regard to Francis now? Uh, as Pope, doubtful Pope, non-Pope, um, no matter which way they turn, they're facing a situation which is unprecedented and uh, seemingly, well, even in the minds of some, untenable. You know? <clears throat> I mean, personally, I find the most, the most dystopian and the most outrageous of, of answers to the current situation 
is that you can have a man who acts as Francis acts, doing what he does and saying what he says, making the pronouncement he does, that he is the absolutely, certainly the Pope, and you can't even question it. That, to me, is the most outrageous of answers and the most dystopian of all possible answers. I don't know if you agree with it. I think there are some who probably would, and many others who would not. Many others would say, well, no, it's much like, for example, our, our writer that I mentioned earlier would say, no, I think it's more dystopian to think that he never had the faith and was never validly elected in the first place. Others would say, oh, I think the most dystopian situation would be if he was elected the Pope and then lost the papacy. I think that's the most dystopian situation of all. The fact is, they're all. They're all dystopian according to the meaning of dystopia. You know, the etymological meaning is you're in a bad place, <laughs> right? You are somehow displaced from where you should be. And this is what modernism has done to us. That's why I think we should find the real enemy in modernism. And the real opponents, the modernists. And those who want to practice the, the true faith, the traditional Catholic faith, as the Church has always said they should. Um, especially in such times, such dystopian times. Uh, I think we have to look for the common ground and try to uh, resolve the issues that, that are, are being used to divide us now and try to come to the most prudent possible position for a Catholic to have in these dystopian times and these dystopian situations. So, but that's uh, my own personal thought on the matter, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> we pray for it. Well, thanks uh, for everything that you do, Father. Thank you for um, your efforts and making that into fruition. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate well, your time. I know everyone else does too, so. I'm not so sure everyone does, but but, um, but uh, thank you, Tim. I, I appreciate that you do. <laughs> In any case, thank God, and we uh, ask His mercy. We continually ask His mercy on uh, the Church, right, and uh, the Catholic people today. We guide them through all of this. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Do Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Pray and be kind. Thank you, and God bless you.